again and welcome to the Talking Bass podcast. This week, Ellen is sitting down to talk bass with the super talented Divinity Rocks. Divinity is best known as touring bass player for Beyonce, as well as her collaborations with Victor Wooten and her own solo work. Not only is she a killer bassist, she's also a fantastic rapper with the ability to mix both together, showcasing her incredible rhythmic coordination and independence. In this interview, Divinity discusses her musical background and the steps that led to her filling such a massive bass chair with Beyonce. She also gives some tips on bass practice and an insight into her work with Victor Wooten. So let's join Ellen as she sits down to talk bass with the brilliant Divinity Rocks. Hello and welcome to the Talking Bass podcast with me, your host, Ellen O'Reilly, and their amazing Divinity Rocks. Hey. <laughs> hey, Divinity, how are you doing over in America? I'm doing pretty well, you know, just staying busy, staying yeah. as busy as possible. How are you doing? Ah, doing all right. Lockdown has Good. us all a bit crazy. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to get out and experience some live music and some sunshine and other people. Yeah, God, absolutely. Well, for the sake of this podcast, I'd love to go back to the very, very beginning. So how did your whole, you know, how did your love of bass come about? Like, were you from a musical family? I'm not really from a musical family. I'm from a family who loves music. Uh, my uncle, in fact, was a saxophone player who also played bass and he also played keys. He had a band, a little funk band back in the day and they would practice in my grandmother's basement. They would practice all these earth, wind and fire tunes and I would sit on the steps of the basement and just listen to the band play. But I didn't play. Whenever I would go to his house, we would you know, we would play around together in his little studio room, but um, but I didn't never had a bass of my own. He would put a bass in my hand every now and again. My aunt reminded me of this. I had forgotten about this. Um, um, and my mom played music at the house all the time. Music was always playing. And I grew up during a time where the bass was prominent in all the music that was playing. You know, whether you were listening to James Brown or listening to George Clinton and P-Funk and Confunction and um, Pleasure and, I mean, Earth, Wind and & Fire and the Ohio Players, all these bands, you know, were playing on the radio. And, uh, and so the bass was always driving the music. And I guess subliminally, I fell in love with that. You know, mm -hmm. I went to college to UC Berkeley to become a journalist. And I picked up the bass, officially picked up the bass uh, while I was there. And I fell in love. And, uh, and the rest is history, <laughs> her story, rather. Absolutely. So, so what happened then? You were studying journalism and, and when did the bass come in there? I was hanging out with a bunch of musicians. So I was also a, a MC. I was an MC. I was a rapper. I'd been rapping since I was about 12. Uh, once I discovered hip hop music and, and the way hip hop incorporated funk and bass and all those things. Um, I got really heavily into writing. I used to love to read and write. And so rap just really was, was, a, was a way for me to express myself. So I went to college and I figured that I would become a journalist because of my love for reading and love for words. And I ended up hanging out with a bunch of musicians uh, at UC Berkeley. UC Berkeley is a very eclectic place. There are lots of people who didn't go to school <laughs> were hanging out on campus most of the time. And during that time in hip hop, there were things called ciphers where groups of people would get together in circles and freestyle rap with each other while somebody was beatboxing or something. Everybody would just get 
16 bars or eight bars and sometimes people would battle and so i found myself in the environment where i was in a cypher and i met some mcs and then met some musicians and one of the musicians was a guitar player and i was like oh man i think i i'm thinking about you know playing the guitar i think that would be super dope and he was like nah you should get a bass i was like okay so i did <laughs> and i mean it was it was the right choice Okay, and so from that moment, did you go out and get lessons or did you teach yourself or how did it develop? <laughs> I went home for the summer after having that conversation with my friend Paris and bought a bass guitar. My, uh, when did I buy that first bass? I had, um, I was in a car accident in high school. I rarely talk about this. I was in a car accident in high school, my senior year in high school. And I was really hurt up. So I had gotten a settlement from the car accident and I used that money to buy my first bass guitar and amp. Mm. Um, I went back to school. I, you know, I was from Atlanta and during that time, Atlanta just had some really great hip hop music, burgeoning hip hop music happening with Outkast and Goody Mob and the Dungeon Family and Dallas Austin's whole crew over there. and. Shakespeare, all these people were doing really incredible music that was becoming really popular and LA Reed and, and Babyface had set up a label there. And so they were discovering all this talent and they were putting out all these great records. And a lot of that stuff was really bass heavy. So I, when I went back to college, I would, you know, miss home a lot. So I'd play all those records, Goody Mob and Outkast, and I would plug in the bass and just try to play along. Um, I also, because I had grown up playing the clarinet in elementary school and middle school, I bought a Mel Bay bass book. I was familiar with Mel Bay because I believe we used the Mel Bay book <laughs> for the clarinet or something. <laughs> and so I bought this Mel Bay book and started teaching myself to read bass clef. I mean, I had gone through that formal music training on the clarinet. So I basically took what I had been taught back then and tried to apply it to learning bass. Um, I had an ear, I could pick out the notes. And so I taught myself to read bass clef and I taught myself how to play the major scales on the bass and, you know, do all that foundational type of stuff. And I took a lesson or two here and there. My friend Paris showed me exercises to get my hands strong and to get used to that very unfamiliar feeling of holding your hands like this when you play bass, something that is just not natural. Um, and I would just sit at home for hours and hours listening to these records and reading this book and in between doing schoolwork and um, hanging out with my friends and going to ciphers and different things like that. I just played the bass all the time. And so who were your favorite bass players then initially? Initially, whoever was playing on those Outkast records was my favorite bass player. And I found out later that a lot of that bass was played by a bass player by the name of Preston Crump and even Taurus Mateen, who ended up being one of my mentors and teachers later on. Um, and back then there were lots of local bass players. There was um, this cat name, um, what's Trey's last name? Oh my goodness, I don't know Trey's last name. Um, Trey and Woodchuck and, um, oh my goodness, one of my friends, is, his name is, is, is escaping me. He played with India. So there was a huge underground scene in Atlanta. So what happened was after I got into the base in college, I left UC Berkeley and was like, I'm moving back home. The Atlanta 
music scene is popping off it's growing and i had had a hip-hop group in high school and i wanted to reconnect with those guys so i moved back home and the bass was still a very secondary thing it was like a hobby for me so my hip-hop group was starting to play and open up for people and you know get really popular in atlanta but there was also this live music scene and so i was meeting all these musicians and so a lot of my favorite players were the cats i would see in the clubs and of course i was introduced reintroduced to the people i grew up listening to like marcus miller and bootsy collins and you know i didn't know who those people were when i was little listening to their bass lines you know um, Victor Wooten was introduced to me and something about Victor's virtuosity. Victor and Marcus were my two favorite bass players and Michelle and Deggio Cello and Raphael Sadiq. Like there was this soul movement happening during that time. And of course, Michelle was the first black woman I had seen playing bass. Um, and her music was so enchanting and really cool. And there's just a cool movement back then. Everybody was eclectic and funky and all these people were coming through Atlanta with their live shows. And so um, those were, were my influences and those were the people I wanted to be around and the people who I wanted to call colleagues and friends. And, and they kind of gave me uh, this this idea about what I could do with my music and I could be as original as I wanted to be and incorporate all kind of different genres. And in Atlanta at that time, it was crazy because you could go from being at a booty shake club and y'all know what I'm talking about Atlanta. You'd be at the booty shake club and then all of a sudden you were at this punk, like underground <laughs> rave concert with, <laughs> with people who were just doing really crazy eclectic music like wild peach and johnny prophet which is crazy punk band i mean we were just it was just so eclectic and joy it was just all these eclectic personalities and musicians and artists and i just was a kid you know soaking it all up so what happened after that then like what was the bridge between getting back to um atlanta and soaking up all those influences and then getting to Victor Wooden base camp like what happened in between those times oh man a lot so much happened in between there but as I was on the the music scene in Atlanta and I was um learning you know a, a, for a lot of people it was really weird because I was known as a rapper right so I was this rapper and people would see me as a rapper but uh if you went to the uptown comedy corner uh, during that time, I was playing bass with Taurus Mateen, who was an, who is an incredible bass player who had been featured on the Outkast records. I saw him at a jam session once and was like, hey, I play bass. I didn't know. <laughs> and I wasn't really a great player, but I was like, he is good. Wow. How is he doing that? And I just walked up to him and was like, hey, I play bass. And he was like, oh, yeah. I was like, yeah. Will you will you can, will you show me some stuff? And he was like, Yeah, sure, absolutely. Uh, my brothers and I are playing at this Fish Supreme. See, all my ATLEs are gonna know this stuff. There's a, there's there's a fish a fried fish restaurant on the south side of Atlanta. Fish Supreme, I believe, was the name of it. And he and his brothers set up amps and 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 gear outside of this fish place on a Saturday afternoon and just played music and he invited me to come play after that he invited me to come play with him at the uptown comedy corner um and and 
And so I'm doing this and, and people are starting to get to know me as this bass player and this rapper. And, you know, I was evolving. And a good friend of mine, Jermaine Rand, gave me the Victor Wooten uh, You Can't Hold No Groove CD. And I was like, who is this guy and what is he doing? And I mean, I went through the credits. Back then you would read the credits on the CD to see who played what and what was really happening because there was a lot of bass happening and all this melodic stuff was happening along with the groove. And then there's this slap thing, triple ticka 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 ticka. I'm like, what the hell is this? Uh, I was just intrigued by it. And I saw on the back of the, of the of the CD cover that this album was recorded with no overdubs. I was like, oh, he's lying. This guy's lying. I gotta see him. I gotta see him. I gotta know him. Um, so I, uh, whenever he came in town, he came, when I heard that he was in town, I went to see him play live. I missed the show. I got there at the end of the show, and I, um, I saw Anthony. Somebody else was there at the show, and they pointed Anthony out and said, "Hey, that guy right there." Uh, also played bass during Victor's show. And Victor had a lot of people around him. I couldn't really get to him. I didn't know what I would say if I could. So I walked up to Anthony and I was like, hey, I, I play bass. I heard you play bass with Victor. And he was like, yeah. And I said, man, I'm trying to get this slap thing down. But I mean, I've been watching all these Lewis Johnson videos. You know, Lewis Johnson was going super fast. On I had the VHS tape and he's like all crazy and I'm trying to emulate him and he got his thumb above the you know above the neck and I can't really play like that it was really odd awkward for me so I'm like I'm trying to get this slap thing down I just don't know if I'm doing it right and Anthony looks at me and he was like come on he took me on Victor's tour bus handed me Victor's yin-yang bass and said let me see what you what you're doing I was like what so I showed him my little thumb pluck thing and he was like, yeah, it looked like you do, looks like you're doing it right to me. <laughs> um, and he gave me his number because he's like, I give lessons and, you know, um, there's going to be some really exciting things happening soon with Victor and uh, and maybe you could be a part of it. So uh, shortly thereafter, I heard that Victor was having a, a base camp and you had to apply to the base camp. Uh, by answering a series of questions. There was a questionnaire on, on his website. And, uh, and I did, I answered the questionnaire and I, I put it in the mailbox. And uh, sometime later, I got a letter saying I was accepted to his very first base nature camp. Wow. <laughs> and how old were you at that point? I was in my 20s. You know, I left school. I was probably, after I left school, I had been home for a couple of years. So I was maybe 23 or something like that. I wasn't a kid, you know. I was, I was, yeah, I was an adult. <laughs> I was grown <laughs> legally. Um, but I was really, really, really intrigued with the bass guitar. Like it was. It was something that I knew I would never master, or at least that's at that time, I thought, this is something that I am never gonna master. This is a lifelong journey for me. Mm. And I wanna go on this journey. I really thought about it like that. I got this bass clef tattoo on the back of my neck that I often forget about until somebody pointed out. But I remember when I got that tattoo, that was my intention was, 
that this was a lifelong journey. And so I was gonna take it forever. <laughs> and what was the base camp like? Oh man. Sure. You know, out in nature with a load of bases. <laughs> yeah, man, it was weird because I had never been camping before. Uh, and another friend of mine, oh man, you think about the people who come in your life and go and you never know why and how. Um, but there was a really good friend, at, he was a really good friend at the time, incredible bass player. And he had gotten accepted into the camp too. He had a, and he was driving. So he was gonna, I, was, I could ride with him. He had a tent, he was used to camping. I had never camped before. He was like, you can stay in my tent. And I was like, okay, <laughs> it's no big deal. <laughs> okay. Um, and we didn't have like a close relationship. We were not, we weren't dating or anything. He was just like, I don't know. It was God, honestly. He was like one of those angels that come into your life. And we um, went to the camp. He helped me understand what it meant to camp. We pitched a tent. We slept in the tent. We, I had a sleeping bag. Um, I bought some like little camping gear to be outside. I had ruptured my Achilles tendon shortly before, not shortly, but a year before. So I had really just begun to walk again during this time at the base camp. And there was real, it was really a spiritual awakening for me at this time. There was this, this new sense of hope this new vision for my life at that time. I was around all these kids who had grown up playing bass who were all way better than me. They were all so, so much more advanced than I was. I didn't know much. Um, I mean, I didn't know anything. I met Chuck Rainey there. I was like, oh my God, he's a legend. You know, I was uh, Victor and all the nature people. <laughs> Uh, we did we did really cool exercises. Um, it was very very well curated and put together. The classes were mind blowing. There was just so much information, and I just remember the very first day of the camp. What we have to do is you have to everybody gets together and we introduce ourselves by playing bass. I was so nervous because I was like, what am I gonna play? You know, like what. What am I gonna do? I had been I had been asking Taurus, how do you come up with your own bass lines, you know? But I had been working on this song for myself where I was trying to combine rapping and playing together because I thought that if I could do that, it would make me a really unique artist. And I'd start working on this song called Divinity. It was the D-I-V-I-N-I-T-Y. And I had created this little funky little bass line, super simple and D, because that was my favorite key and uh and the little rap that goes with it and taught myself how to spit the rap and play the bass at the same time and i asked victor if i could introduce myself it's perfect t song to introduce myself to because i was saying my name and he asked me is, is that what you do and i was like yeah so he's like well feel free to do what you do and so i did it i got up there scared out of my mind and played uh played my little song and the reception was phenomenal. Everybody, and there's a part in the song where I say, uh, let me hear you say, yeah. And everybody goes, yeah. And I was like, whoa, everybody, <laughs> they were into it. And afterwards people would come up and pat me on the back and be like, wow, that was really cool. 
So it was really funny to me because they were all way better than, than me as players. I mean, people were getting up there and playing some really amazing bass and they all thought my simple little bass line and rap was really cool. And uh, after the camp, Victor asked if I would go on tour with him. He, he called me and said, uh, hey, you know that song you played or do you have more like that? And I said, yeah, yeah, I got a lot of songs like that. That's, you know, that's what I do. <laughs> he said, okay, you wanna perform? We wanna open up my show? And he had a whole idea about it. And I was like, yeah, uh, I wanna open up your show and play my songs. But I didn't have any more songs. I really only had that one song. So after I hung up the phone with him, I had to go write some songs. <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, have you told Victor that since? Yeah, yeah, he did. We were at a at a clinic together, and uh, and I was telling the story. It's so funny because we both tell this story uh, quite often when we talk about the camp because it was his very first base camp, so it was a very special camp. Um, and uh, and he was here. He was listening to me tell the story, and he was like. I didn't know that was your only song. I was like, yeah, that was the only song I had. So I had to go and I, I think I had three months. And so for those three months, I was really working hard to play and, and, and rap. So I had to write the lyrics and write some bass lines and rap them and play them together. I think one of the bass lines I played was like a, a version of Pusha Man because it was a pretty simple bass line to play and I could rap over it. And so that was one. And then Rebel, Rebel was a, was, was another one. I wasn't doing the, the thump. I, I added the thump to Rebel after, after that first tour, I believe. Uh, so what were those shows like with Victor? You know, it's really funny. They were, that's <laughs> really cool. It was my first time on a tour bus. And we would play a variety of different venues. The very first show of that tour happened to be in Atlanta. I had a I had enrolled at Georgia State to try to become a better bass player. And I was in school with a bunch of really great bass players. Kind of felt like when I went to Victor's camp. And um and I would often get embarrassed in class. I, I, they accepted me into the school because they needed more bass players to play in the ensemble. And I agreed that I would play in the ensemble. And uh, when I auditioned, I played and the, uh, the, the head of the department, the jazz department, he, he recognized that I, was, that I could play, but he put a chart in front of me and I didn't know what to do. <laughs> and he was like, okay, that's fine you can play we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna help you get to where you need to get to um but some of those classes were really over my head i still really didn't i just i, I just wasn't comprehending some of the jazz language and things like that so i would often get really embarrassed in class and i say that to say when i uh when we opened up the show at variety playhouse i remember standing on stage and the audience was really all bass players all male bass players, specifically all white male bass players. It was really, really, uh, you know, because everybody, every bass player want to come see Victor. Uh, and I played the show and I remember hearing that from the whole audience when I first stepped out on stage and I saw some of the students 
who I had been in class with, who I had been super embarrassed to be in class with, who snickered at me when I was in class and couldn't solo over some over jazz changes. But I mean, I get it. We were in college. But um, but that was a kind of it was kind of sweet because I got to my intention wasn't to be in there soloing over jazz changes. It was to be on stage performing my my songs and my style with my bass guitar playing what I loved, which was the funk and the rock and hip hop. And so it was a it was a, there was a little bit of a redemption there. Um, but what the funny, I always remember this too. We went from playing at Variety Playhouse, which is a huge venue in Atlanta, thousand seat venue, beautiful stage, beautiful sound system. You know, I mean, it's it's huge. It's, it's a great theater uh, to play in. And we went from there to North Carolina and we were playing in a barn, literally a barn. And Victor looked at me and he said, Welcome to show business. <laughs> One day you'll be playing in a in a really incredible venue, and the next day you'll be playing in the barn. But I will tell you that barn was rocking. I mean, it was rocking, full of people who had a great time and. I mean, it's just one of those things you never forget. I was sitting on stage thinking, oh my God, I'm here backstage with Victor Wooten. <laughs> and, and we went on and we, <clears throat> we went up the East Coast that tour. It's my first time in Buffalo, New York. We went to see uh, Niagara Falls and we played all kinds of venues and it was really exciting, really exciting time for me. Uh, did you get to learn stuff from Victor when you were working with him? Yeah, I mean, just being around him, you learn so much, you know. Uh, you know, he, he, he never would sit down with me and give me lessons. You know, it's almost, I always say now, when I think about it and talk about it, it's like, uh, you know, when you are, a martial artist and you make this decision that you want to be you want to be great at it uh and you want to dedicate your life to it you um <clears throat> you seek out the master right so you seek out the master and you go meet the master and you climb this mountain and you you know go through all this treacherous terrain to get to the master who's sitting at the top of this mountain secluded and you get there and the master is meditating and you say teach me and the master says something like uh go fetch me some water or go cook me dinner or go clean my house or something like that and you're like wait a minute i thought you was going to teach me how to be a martial artist you know <laughs> and instead the master teaches you how to be a human you know and while that's not you know exactly what happened with Victor. I liken it to that because I got to go live with the master. So you, you see how the master lives, and you see what the master does, and 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 how the master thinks, and the books they read, and 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 the way they talk to people, and the way you know the way he deals with people, and the way he manages the band, and the way he approaches difficult situations, and you just learn. You know, and I didn't realize it then, but I was learning much more than uh, 
than how to be a better bass player, you know, and I needed that at that time for sure, how to be a, a better human. So after uh, the, the bass camp and after your tours with Victor, your career just shot off. What happened after that tour? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, after Victor's first tour, I think he went back on tour with Bela Fleck. And I went back to Atlanta with a little more validation, <laughs> you know, from 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 fellow musicians. And I, you know, put put my band together and play, you know, started playing shows locally and and recorded an album because I had, you know, my I, I, I kind of left the hip hop group I was touring with and started focusing on on a solo career and started learning how to record myself and you know use drum machines and use recording equipment and excuse me and just become more than a musician and, and really get my ideas down and learn how to, how to use the equipment and the tools to do so uh and you know then to victor and, and you know i would do that put a record out and then i could go on tour with victor again and sell those records and then go back home and play shows and I was in that cycle of doing those things and becoming better and better and more and more popular as a bass player and getting my own little bass gigs locally and things like that. And uh, I did that for about five years. And, and, and then one day uh, I started hearing that Beyonce was looking for uh, musicians for an all-female band and a bunch of people from, from Atlanta and from all around the country who had seen me tour with Victor and who thought that I would be a great fit for a situation like that, started hitting me up and encouraging me to go and, and do this audition. And I never auditioned for anything before, so I was nervous and I didn't think that, that it was a real thing. You know, I thought it was a publicity stunt and that there's no way she's looking for me because she can have anybody she wants. So why would she want me, you know? <laughs> And, you know, I mean, I was still growing as a player, still so much I didn't know and so much work I needed to do and, you know, study and understand the modes and the, 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 just all the things that I was trying to grasp theory and becoming a better player and grooving and, you know, just everything. But, uh, but some really good friends of mine um, came to my house and refused to let me leave until I agreed to go to the audition. And I did, I went to the audition in Atlanta at a, at a place called Crossover where uh, big time artists would go and it's kind of like an SIR or like a center staging type of place in Atlanta called Crossover Studios. And um, I auditioned there and ended up going to New York, being asked to come to New York to audition for the second round of auditions. And after a couple of days in New York auditioning, I was chosen to be the bass player for Beyonce's new all-female band. Amazing. So I got to go on tour with her. It's crazy. <laughs> so what were those auditions like? I hate auditions. <laughs> yeah, I've, I, I've only auditioned for a couple of things since then. It's the very first audition I've ever gone on. And I guess every audition is a little bit unique. Um, they were asking for uh, all kinds, you know, any any female who played 
an instrument to come to the to the first audition in Atlanta. Um, and 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 they had, did they give us a song? Yes, we were told to learn, work it out, uh, which was a, a song off of the Goldfinger is the name of the movie soundtrack. Mm. Work it out, gold member. I don't remember the name of the movie. Um. <clears throat> up through the bridge and they wanted us to learn the bridge from the uh from the tour version i think it was the tour arrangement in general it's a funky bass line and the bridge was really cool too uh kern was a musical director on that on that tour mm -hmm. so we learned that and so uh what would happen is they gave us all a number i was number four <laughs> And uh, and we would we went into the stage went on the stage and they had the lights and it was really nice you know it looked like a concert type of environment and there were you know uh, uh, people sitting at tables who were you know judging us and uh, and so they played the music and said, are you ready yeah okay play the music play along with the track play through the bridge okay they stopped the music and then they just said okay just play play anything you want I was like anything yeah play whatever you want so I mean I played some thumping thump I don't know some I don't know I just played some thumping groove <laughs> and uh and they were like okay cool all right you know and and uh and I left uh CNN happened to be there and I did an interview for CNN because they I, you know they they somebody pointed me out as somebody who was uh, popular uh, on the music scene and I was certainly popular at that time on the underground music scene and so I did this the exit interview with CNN and later that night I got a call to that I would fly to New York and go to Sony Studios uh, to, for the second round and when we got to Sony Studios it became real and it was a little intimidating you know they put us all in the room together and they would call us in uh, as a band. So instead of going in and playing by yourself at that point, you, you were playing with other people. And they had pretty much chosen a full band from each city where the auditions were held. So, you know, from Atlanta, for instance, there was a drum, bass, keys, guitars, uh, horn players, you know, and from every city they had chosen that group. So the way they organized it in the beginning was, all the all the Atlanta musicians come in and play together um and so we did and then they did that for every city and then they would start calling us in individually give me the drummer from Atlanta the bass player from Houston the guitar player from New York blah 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 and so they would do these different combinations for a while and after the first day you would see people leave um and then the second day uh there was a smaller group of people there and they would start calling, you know, calling you in more often and switching out different components. Give me the bass player from Atlanta, give me the drummer from New York, give me the saxophone player from uh, New York and, you know, <clears throat> go on and on from there. And then they would call the other bass player in, I would leave, and then they would call me back in. And, you know, so we would do that back and forth. And then at one point, there were a really small number of us and there were two bass players it was me and another woman who was canadian and uh and and there were two drummers and so um 
they, you know, asked us to, to battle each other in a sense, <laughs> to go back and forth between each other and play. And so we were playing and it was really fun though, cause we were all, um, we weren't battling. I mean, in a sense we were, but we were encouraging each other because number one, most of us had never played with other women before in that type of environment. So it was exciting to play with these women who were just as hungry and just as aggressive and, um, and, and eager and uh, excited to be there as you were. Mm. You know, I'll never forget sitting when Nikki first uh, hit that kick drum with her foot and I turned around like, oh, oh, all right, let's go, you know, because that felt good, <laughs> you know, and and playing with Kim and BB came in at the end, like it was, it was just all really, really cool. It was all really cool. So what's it like, uh, you know, touring with an all-female band compared to you being the only girl with a load of lads? The, the biggest difference is the sense of community that you forge with, with, a, with a bunch of women. Um, with a bunch of guys, you're, you're, no, matter, no matter how the guys accept you as part of their, their pack, you're still a girl. And with that, there is, a, there is some separation. You know, I, I don't know how to describe it any other way is that you can be, you can visit the club, but you're still not in the club, you know? Um, whereas with women, we were all, hey, we are, we are the club. <laughs> you know, we, we would go out together a lot. And, and even the, the, the crew guys on the tour would say things like, you guys hang out more than than the male bands do. You guys hang out together. You guys do things together. You guys go and plan dinner and go plan touristy things as a group. It was more inclusive, I believe, is the best way to describe the biggest difference. So after uh, those tours of Beyonce, was that was that sense of like community with other women? Was that what led you to to form the, your own? you know, that all female collective that you have? Um, the OGs, you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was us really wanting to stay connected with each other as musicians and have an opportunity to play together and invite other women uh, and connect with other women uh, who are just as incredible and just as eager and just as serious about music, you know? Um, yeah, I think that that's kind of part of the reason why we 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 wanted we wanted to to continue to be in that community. Mm -hmm. It's really important for us to to create spaces where we feel safe and where we can um, experience uh, playing music together as women because it's like I said, it's it still can be rare for mm. for groups of us, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And you said something that kind of hit a nerve with me there. It's like when you were going to go for that audition, the first audition with, with Beyonce, you were nearly afraid to go for it only for your friends came around and made you do, <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like, I don't know if if many other female musicians feel that this at some point, but they kind of feel like you kind of feel like you're an underdog, you know, and you kind of there's like an inner voice in your head 
saying that you can't do it, you know, and you listen to that voice a bit more, I think, when you're a female musician, because you're getting it so much on the outside anyway, you know. Like, hmm. So I hmm. like the idea of the OGs that you're helping to build other women up. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I don't know if that's if that's a female thing or if that's something that society has 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 continued to to um, to teach us or tell us that we that we that we can't be or can't do. Um, because I think I think everybody who plays music and everybody who's going out and trying to do something and make something of themselves in the world, has, they all have fear and doubt and worry. Um, one thing that I'm starting to learn as I grow older and, 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 and hopefully wiser is that uh, everybody's nervous. Everybody's a little scared. Even people who are CEOs, you know, I listen to Brene Brown sometimes. She talks about how she's done a lot of research. And one of the things that even people who are at the top of their game at the highest levels will express their vul in, their, in their vulnerable moments is how afraid they are to, to lead and to go out and do these things, go out and, and be different in the world. Because being a leader is stepping out from a comfort zone and there's naturally fear that comes with that. So I think what we have to do is understand that, yes, we are all going to be afraid. It's natural. It's not that we have to get rid of the fear. It's more so what, what we do with it. Have we really surrounded ourselves, for instance, with people who love us enough to help us push through those fears? And have we given ourselves enough skills to recognize fear as being false evidence appearing real? And are we willing to, to, to push through it and still go for it no matter what? And I think over the years, having had to face so many fears and so many doubts, when I feel that feeling of fear, it almost gives me a little bit more courage to push for some reason. Something else that's greater than that fear wells up inside of me and says, oh, we really gonna go for it now. Because that fear is telling you almost that it's worth it. You know, mm. that's kind of kind of how I'm starting to think about it now. So um, going on to your uh, solo music, you know, um, how do you approach songwriting then? Woo, in a bunch of different ways, however it comes to me. Um, <clears throat> songs come whenever they want to, no matter what you're doing. Uh, recognizing that appreciating that and respecting that is the key for me. And that means whenever a song comes, whatever circumstance it comes in, I've learned to pick up a pen or a, a, a phone and record it. The melody, even if there are no words, the words, sometimes words come and there's no melody or any music that comes along with it. And I'll just type it up in a, in, in a voice note. And I have these little folders on my phone for lyrics and I have these voice notes that I'll name whatever and I, and I'll go through them when I want to sit down and focus on creating something. Sometimes when I sit down and focus on creating something, a song will come. Sometimes when I'm practicing the bass, which I have to be very careful about, 
uh, having practice time that's dedicated to practice because oftentimes my practice time will become a songwriting time because I'll be practicing something and something cool will come up and I'm like, woo, that's dope. Oh yeah, let's make a song. Let's plug up the, oh, let's turn, pull up Pro Tools. Let's hit record. All right, here we go. You know, now I'm songwriting when I'm supposed to be practicing my arpeggios, you know? <laughs> um, so generally, it depends, you know, sometimes a baseline, sometimes it starts with the bass. I'll lay a bass down, baseline down, maybe eight bar loop. And then I'll pull up some drums and start playing around with the drums and put a little drum beat on it and plug up the microphone and just start saying syllables, some rhythm or some melody or something. And then I'll sit with it. And if I really like it, I'll jump up and down around the room and be like, oh my God, this is so fucking amazing. Yeah. Oh, then I'll call my wife in. Baby, listen to this. It's amazing. And it doesn't really sound like anything to her because it's my demo. And in my head, I hear the whole finished product. But to her, she just hears this bass line, this little melody and some little bare drum beat. And she's like, oh, that's cool. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and that'll be the beginnings of some song. And from there, you know, then you got to, you know, you got to really put some work into it, you know, whether it be finding the right drum sounds, dialing in the right bass tone, figuring out what these lyrics are really going to be, coming up with a different part, a chorus part, you know, how is the chorus going to change? And what key is this in? And, oh, if this is in this key, oh, I could do this. Oh, this is a minor key. Oh, maybe I should do, go, go, go to a major key in the, in the chorus or, you know, you really start just crafting. Mm. But before crafting, my favorite part is just coming up with the idea, you know, <laughs> so that's kind of, does that, does, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, oh, that, answers, that answers. Um, <laughs> I'm just wondering about like, how did you develop that independence? You know, cause I, I've seen so many videos and I've seen you do it live loads of times as well. You know, the, Aww, the, thank you. all different techniques that you're employing when you're playing bass and then wrapping over it. Like, how do you get to that point? Practice, 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 practice. I mean, there, <clears throat> I have to have some kind of predisposition to it some from somewhere. Maybe just like I love rhythm so much. I've always loved rhythm uh, from being just really being a kid and rapping. You know, I loved rappers with rhythm and Black Thought was at one point my favorite rapper in the world because he rapped so fast and he was so intelligent and and the rhythm of his rhymes and, and, and their interweaving of the raps and the inter rhyming that he would do. And Andre 3000, same thing. Um, so I think that had this predisposition to rhythm, I think. Uh, but putting them together, it's still difficult for me. And it requires that I actually spend time doing it and practicing songs. So sometimes there are some grooves that I can play and I can just naturally rap over them, you know, and I might get hung up on a word or two, but it's because the rhythm of the rhyme and the rhythm of the bass are clashing in some way or maybe I need to I'm switching something physically and my mind is thinking about that but also how this word is interacting uh with the rhythm of this bass line trips me up 
So I have to slow that down and find the spaces in between, whether it be even 30 second notes in between how to merge these things together. And repetition is, we learn by repetition. So after doing it a few times, okay, now I got it, you know, um, but it really is about slowing it all down, really slowing it down and getting in between all of these rhythms and understanding how this vocal is interacting with this bass line. And the other thing is, is really understanding that the brain is going to eventually, if you continue to work on this technique, there are some subconscious elements that come into play because once you've been working on this technique, your brain has, has, has decided that this is something that you want to do and be able to do all the time. So subconsciously I begin to play bass. So this rhythm on the bass is, I'm not even thinking about it anymore. And that's the point we all want to get to with our bass playing. That's why we have to practice arpeggios and practice those things that we have to think about because eventually if we practice them enough. We don't have to think about them. They just happen. And so that's what's happening for me as a bass player. A lot of times is that subconsciously I'm playing this groove. And so now I'm thinking about the rap because I'm trying to remember the words, for instance. Mm -hmm. But the thing for me is that rapping has gotten to the point where it is in my subconscious. It's just about remembering the words. <laughs> <laughs> the rhythm is so subconscious so I can if I'm messing up the words I'm not gonna mess up the rhythm because I can just say garble 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 you know in between but still keep up with the rhythm of it you know um but it's really just practicing that's what everything athletes are constantly practicing that's why they're that's why they you know professional athletes especially you know they they're in the they, they have made it to the top of the game lebron james is the best basketball player arguably the best basketball player in the world but you know he still goes and shoots free throws mm -hmm. because it's fundamentally something that he has to do in order for his subconscious mind to to get it, to, you know, to do it. He's not thinking about the mechanics of it when he's in the game, you know, but when you're practicing it, you are, you get to think about the mechanics of it. So you get to the point where you don't have to think about it. Mm. I hope, yeah, I, that was the tangent. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, I think that you totally, get what I'm saying. <laughs> it makes sense. It makes sense. I remember seeing you at the Warwick Base Camp and I, I sat in your class and I was there at the back making my notes for the magazine. Oh, yeah, I remember that when I was doing the, um, yeah, the uh, the independence class. Yeah. Yes. And I remember you were like, OK, you got someone to play something, something kind of simple, like a police thing or something. Something they like, know. Yeah. Yeah. And then you were like, right, why did you have your breakfast? And then <laughs> you were like trying to draw a conversation out of them. And then you were like, there you go. You're rapping. <laughs> yeah, it's like. Because, you know, you know, I wanted to choose a song that people know, you know, and, and that's, that's a great way to, to, to practice this is, is playing something on bass that you don't even have to think about, you know, there are some bass lines we just know no matter what. 
you know, you can be thinking about something completely different and you're just playing this baseline and you're just, it's so natural. And then start talking and having a conversation. Mm-hmm. That is a, is a great way to practice uh, getting that, that independence, I think. Yeah. So what is your, like, your regular base practice regime then per day? Oh, man, I wish I practiced every day. I really, lately I've been so busy um, that I have not been practicing every day, which is kind of eek. Um, and when I get to this point that I'm at right now, what I normally do and what I probably am going to start doing um, this this week and this weekend is getting up earlier so that I can get that hour in. So if I normally wake up at seven, now that I'm not really getting my practice time in by waking up at seven, I need to wake up at six and get in here and um, and practice. Sometimes it depends. I, for instance, there are some things that I practice more regularly than others. And usually it involves um, really making sure that each of my fingers is extremely independent of each other. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the exercises that Anthony teaches is an exercise uh, called 24 permutations. Mm-hmm. And so I practice, I, I'll practice, I'll start off warming up with that practice. And I'll choose one of the permutations specifically to practice because going through the whole 24 takes up a pretty good chunk of time, right? So for instance, uh, one of the permutations, each permutation starts on a different finger. And so if you have four fingers, there are 24 different ways you can play. Uh, There's a different series of, of, of ways you could play using those four fingers. So the first one would be one, two, three, four, right? And so you would go one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Then you would go one, two, four, three, right? On bass. And then you would go um, one, three, two, four, right? And then you would go one, three, four, two. And the same thing you would go. So you would start off with one and play every permutation you can play from one. But my third finger is always the finger that's a little slower than the rest. Mm. And so when I sit down to practice this exercise, I am usually starting with the third finger because it is, it's, I, I recognize it as being one of my weakest fingers. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is, is, is just, uh, physiology because this finger doesn't have its own tendon it's it's attached to the middle finger and the pinky and I learned this in physical therapy so this finger is not independent of the others where all your other fingers are so it makes sense that the third finger is always kind of giving me a little bit of of trouble and I will oftentimes because I want my technique to be such that I can do whatever it is I want to imagine doing without tripping up the rhythm and without messing up the timing Sometimes I'll substitute my pinky for my third finger. And I don't really want to do that because I need to, I need my pinky to be able to get to another note, mm-hmm. you know? So that's why I usually 
start with the exercise. It's so boring to talk about and so ridiculous. No, it's not. It's just a bass player podcast. They're going to be out. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so that that's one of the things I do. Um, I practice my, sometimes I'll go through the, the arpeggios around the circle of fits, which is a lot of fun. <laughs> um, I will, um, one of my favorite exercises, I haven't done this in a while. I'm glad I'm talking about it because I'm definitely going to do this uh, tomorrow is I have a random number generator. This is so base. It's such some base nerdy shit. It's great. This is great. I never really get to talk about this stuff. I have a random base, random number generator app in my phone per Anthony Wellington. I love him. He always has these really weird exercises to do. And you put uh, the, the, the random number generator uh, one through seven um, and you tell it, okay, mix these numbers up. And so it gives you a series of numbers from one through seven, but in, in, diff in crazy orders, like, you know, three, five, seven, two, one, four, right? So I can do so many things with that. I can play all my modes going around that, uh, that sequence of numbers. I can play arpeggios, uh, starting on the third, uh, play play seventh arpeggio starting on the third or on the seventh going around that crazy uh, series of numbers in in a certain key you know I choose a key and then I go around Woof, that's crazy even thinking about it now now I'm definitely gonna do that tomorrow <laughs> starting on the seventh you know um, so you know different things like that and I'll do that type of stuff for an hour and twist my brain around and then maybe I'll then I'll do something for fun because that makes me happy like working on um you can't hold no groove for by Victor Wooten because I really want to be able to play that song uh at a certain tempo really clean and really fast and oftentimes I um I, I'll get into playing it and then I will uh not play it for a long time and then forget how to play it <laughs> so it's like starting over every time um so yeah just just stuff like that i hope that yeah that's great that's evan marion has some really great exercises too on his instagram i have to say you're making me feel so lazy i'm like <laughs> oh no it's hard it's it's so hard um but like I said, I haven't been, you know, the past few days, like I'll pick up the bass and I'll just play something that's familiar or fun mm. for, for a little bit. And then, you know, then I'll start answering emails and um, I'm working on a, on a children's album or family music album right now. So mm. I'll get into doing, you know, editing the guitars, the timing of the guitars or oh, I don't like this drum pattern, or is that the right kick drum for this song? Oh, no, I, let me go through my kick drum library and replace the kick with this. You know, like different things like that yeah. will take up my time. Um, so, you know, getting into that technical, get you know, bass stuff that we do, that we did when we first started playing. Uh, when I start getting into it, though, like I lose track of time and I love it. Like mm -hmm. I get really deep into it and it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> what's your what's your it's it's ridiculous because i'm like i really should practice all this stuff <laughs> i feel so lazy talking to you <laughs> i'm like what my mind gone 
Don't even ask me about my practice regime. Jesus. Anyway. <laughs> so what's next for you, uh, Divinity? What's that? What do you plan on doing after um, COVID? Are you going to tour a new album or what's your plan? Well, right now I'm working on a family music album. I'm releasing a single uh, May 13th called Ready, Set, Go. It's a, a children's uh, song that I wrote. Um, and I am gonna actually make a make a whole project of, of children's music. It's something that I had been putting off. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, I always thought, oh yeah, you know, when I get older, I'm gonna make a children's album. And, because I, I made a children's song years and years and years ago called I Can Be Anything. And it's, it's like one of those things that I always wanted to get back to. Um, but since this, since the pandemic, uh, I've had these really incredible music licensing opportunities with some of my children's music. And so it's really inspired me to revisit that project and to pull up some of my old tracks that maybe I had laid, you know, down my first ideas, demo ideas of some children's songs. I'm really excited about that. I'm also working on this uh, one woman-esque show where I will kind of be telling the origin stories of the superhero divinity rocks you know from a um from the perspective of 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 my life as a as a black woman in this country who's you know who comes from sharecroppers you know people who um didn't own their own land and 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 didn't have uh certain opportunities in this world um and and how despite all of that uh i feel like i am there uh i am their dreams manifest you know um so i want to tell that story i want to tell their story and how it's intertwined with my own with the bass guitar with some really cool uh, music and some really cool um some really cool stories that I think people would find uh, inspiring. Oh, brilliant. Can't wait to see that. Hopefully you'll get a tour yeah. in Europe. Yeah, I really hope so. You know, I haven't been back to Europe uh, in a while. I toured uh, with my with the first I'm Possible band, but I went out with this really crazy promoter and things went haywire and he sort of he sort of messed it up for me. Uh, with some venues there, despite the venues having been very excited about my band mm -hmm. being there, but we'll figure it out. The, you know, this music business can be, can be something. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Divinity, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Ellen, and it's so good to see you. I hope we get to see each other at NAMM again. Absolutely. Maybe 2022, 2023. I'm seeing that, 2022, fingers crossed. Yeah, well, we got to get these numbers down and, you yeah. know, whatever's happening is not going away anytime soon. Mm. And so we just have to be safe and make sure we uh, we take care of each other. Um, but it, it, it I, I miss I miss the community. I miss yeah. being around uh, other musicians and being on stage. But when we do get back to the stage. It's going to be a lot of loud, fast music being played. So y'all get ready to dance. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks so much. <laughs>